Thanks, Lauren, and at my welcome to you all this morning. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We've been lingering here these past weeks, giving our attention to the Ten Commandments. And I believe it serves us to frequently remind ourselves of the particular context of the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel, you remember, they are meeting for the very first time the one who so powerfully and so graciously rescued them from slavery and now here at the foot of Mount Sinai, God speaks to them, he speaks to them audibly, he speaks to them directly, and on this occasion God chooses not to communicate through an intermediator, a, a, a messenger, rather God addresses them, and he addresses them not just corporately as a nation, he is addressing them as individuals. And that's made plain, we've seen several times through this consistent Use of the second person singular pronoun you. It's, it's, it's as though God is making eye contact. Eye contact. He's speaking to each one individually. It's so very important that we notice that since God is making very clear the very personal nature of what is happening in this holy moment. God is calling each one individually to be faithful. Faithful not just to his holy law, but ultimately faithful to him. I, I, I find it helpful, again, to see this occasion as, as something akin to a marriage ceremony. Some of you are here this weekend for a wedding. There's this moment in, in that ceremony when the couple, they face one another and they communicate their vows to one another. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening here at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is speaking to his bride and making his promises and inviting a response. God is calling each one of them to himself, to the one who delivered I mean, this most... This most undeserving people from their helpless and their oppressed condition. God, God saves. God saves. And when God saves, He calls people. He draws people. He invites them to Himself. And I believe that's what God is doing here this morning. The gift of salvation. God is offering calling, inviting some of you here to respond to him today. And so we come to the 10th and final commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And since these, these commands are always to be heard and understood in this redemptive context, I'm going to begin reading in verses 1 and 2 before reading verse 17. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand, stand in honor of God's word and listen carefully to God's word beginning in Exodus chapter 20, 
and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This word is God's word. Let's pray. It's fitting as we stand in your presence, O Lord, to marvel, just, just, to, just to wonder at what a, what a thing it is to hear the maker of heaven and earth address us. Address us corporately, but to speak to each one of us personally and individually. And that's our heart's desire today, that that's what you would do, that you would call our attention to your voice, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would make our hearts to be inclined, and responsive, and interested, and that you'd make the eyes of our hearts and souls to see. Lord, I pray that you would, you would actually... Give life, spiritual life this morning. Say, shine. Light, let light shine in the darkness so that, so that each one might see your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would communicate yourself, reveal yourself to us, that we might find joy in you and deeper soul satisfaction in you than in any Thing else this world can offer. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my outline this morning just has two points. First of all, the rule of the Tenth Commandment. And second, the revelation of the Tenth Commandment. The rule of the Tenth Commandment and the revelation of the Tenth Commandment. We begin with the rule. And the rule is, you shall not covet. And unlike the other nine commandments, and in order to feel the full force and seriousness of the Tenth Commandment, God repeats it twice. And the Hebrew word translated covet... You know, it's not a negative word in and of itself. It, it simply means desire. <laughs> and so that there's no misunderstanding, this rule does not assume that every desire, every longing is wrong in God's eyes. It's, it's not sinful to desire something to eat 
It's not sinful to desire a Nick's gyro or a slice of Sonny's pizza or a Looks Porkulee's sandwich. It's not a sinful desire to, to, to want a promotion at your place of employment it's, or good grades in all of your classes or a, a few hours of precious sleep at night, especially if you're the mother of a newborn. Children, it's not sinful to want toys and games. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so the 10th commandment is not a rule that forbids the enjoyment of God's countless expressions of generous hearted goodness. Rather, the 10th commandment forbids desiring what belongs to someone else. It forbids the misplaced desire for things such as your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The rule of the Tenth Commandment prohibits desiring for ourselves what belongs to someone else. So coveting then is a misplaced desire, the desire to possess what is our neighbor's. And the, the, the rule does not forbid desiring something we don't have. The rule forbids desiring what somebody else has. And notice it's not like vague, abstract, fuzzy, you know, like what's he really talking about here? The, the, the Lord applies the command very, very specifically. He, he applies it to his neighbor, the neighbor's house, ox, donkey. And, and then that list is really intended to just kind of be a Kickstarter, right? It's, it's, it's a Kickstarter for self-evaluation. It begins with specifics and then it broadens out and concludes with anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That means covetousness comes in lots of shapes and sizes. Which leads to another crucial observation. Notice that unlike the other nine, the tenth commandment specifically is addressing the heart. The rule of the tenth commandment does not speak to our actions per se. The tenth commandment is about a forbidden desire rather than a forbidden act. The tenth commandment speaks to speaks to and rules against sinful, inordinate, misplaced desires before they turn into sinful acts. The Tenth Commandment makes crystal clear that what goes on in our hearts, what's going on in our thoughts and our feelings, it matters. 
and it matters massively to God. It's not just our conduct, it's not just our behaviors that, that everybody can see that matters, it's not just the, the fruit that matters, it's the root that matters. It's what's going on inside of us that only God sees that matters. A friend, a friend pointed me to a comic strip, and in this single-framed comic, there's a drawing of Moses, and he's standing before God, and he's holding the, the, you know, the tables of the Ten Commandments. And after reading the Tenth Commandment, Moses looks up at, to God and he says, Oh, I understand. With the coveting part, we can get everybody. There's some who wonder why we give attention to an Old Testament text that focuses mainly on conduct and behavior when it's the concern of the New Testament to focus on the heart. Listen, according to the 10th commandment, focusing on the heart is as much an Old Testament concern as it is a New Testament concern. And in a very real sense, the 10th commandment, it does get everybody. We're all there, right? It's because everybody is guilty of coveting in some way or form his or her neighbor's things. And so the 10th commandment searches, it scrutinizes our inner being. It's like a spiritual MRI. And it confirms for us that we are sinners in light of our disobedience to this very clear command. The 10th commandment certainly, it certainly had that effect on the Apostle Paul. Prior to Paul's conversion, he described himself in Philippians chapter 3 as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What a statement. <laughs> he, he was so self-assured until he examined his heart. He examined his heart in light of the 10th commandment. It was the 10th commandment. It was, it was the 10th commandment that exposed Paul's misplaced desire. In Romans chapter 7, he writes... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have just thought myself totally blameless. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See how, how crucial the 10th commandment is, it's, it's intentionally, it's thoughtfully, it's carefully, it's wisely crafted by God, therefore suited to highlight the need that each and every one of us has for a Savior. Francis Schaeffer writes, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. 
The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul that he's getting along all right. But suddenly, when he's confronted with the inward command not to covet, he's brought to his knees. Loved ones, when we seriously consider the 10th commandment and, and our daily tendency to break the 10th commandment, it, it, should, it should bring us to our knees. I mean, don't, you don't have to think back very much further than like this last week to discover some example of coveting what belongs to our neighbor. There, there are modern equivalents to each and every one of the temptations listed in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that we are faced with every day. So, so you know, just think about it. You, you get up in the morning. And you get your cup of coffee. And you look out your window. And you begin to study your neighbor's house. And, and you start to notice all the ways that your neighbor's house is superior to your house. I mean, it looks like it could be on the... It could, featured on the cover of Midwest Home or Architectural Digest. I mean, even the design of the garage door looks like a work of art. And that the lawn doesn't have a single weed. And it's always mowed diagonally. And you, you covet the modern equivalent to the Israelites' neighbor's ox when you look out the window and you see your neighbor mowing that perfectly manicured lawn with the latest John Deere riding lawnmower. Your neighbor's mower costs more than your car. Your neighbor's mower is probably faster than your car. Comes with a state-of-the-art GPS system, you know, JBL speakers. Probably has an espresso machine. <laughs> and you don't have a riding more. And, and you were totally fine with that until he purchased a riding more. And then fall arrives early. You hear the cicadas these days? It's coming. Like next week. And, and, and leaves cover your lawn. And then your neighbor hires the equivalent of male servants who are, who are going to remove every single leaf from his perfect lawn while you will devote unreasonable hours to the muscle inflaming and blister breaking and hip joint grinding time-consuming task of, of, of raking and, and blowing and bagging and making multiple trips to the leaf dump. And, and, and you will spend a 
ridiculous amount of money on joint relief supplements while working at what turns about out to be this utterly futile task as the South Dakota wind blows what remaining leaves that may be in your neighbor's yard into your yard. Seemingly mocking you as those leaves just keep on collecting under your shrubs and up against your fence. Oh, but not your neighbor because he hires people servants and those servants collect all those leaves and carry them all away for him so that he can continue to enjoy his retirement and take trips to Cornhusker football games. Or how about the temptation that rises when your friend shows up with his, his shiny new black pickup truck? His, his new pickup truck is the modern equivalent of the latest donkey. As a means of transportation goes, you're, you're just, you're fine with your donkey until he shows up with the latest model. Heated steering wheel, air-conditioned seats, you know, cameras connected to this massive flat-screen monitor on the dashboard gives you a full 360-degree coverage up and down and around and every side of any incoming danger. And, and you're, you're looking at that new donkey. And in comparison to your donkey, <laughs> well, your donkey is pathetic. Everything changes because of what your neighbor has obtained. And you see, this temptation can involve anything that is your neighbor's. And that's why Jesus said, be on your guard against all covetousness because it can involve your neighbor's job, it can involve your neighbor's salary, your neighbor's appearance, your neighbor's ability, your neighbor's intelligence, his new hunting rifle, or her new fiance, or her wedding venue, or her friends, or her figure or her family. I mean, it could be your neighbor's happy and, and apparently conflict-free, vitalized marriage. It can involve your neighbor's children who always seem to be perfectly respectful and never break any rules. Oh, and it starts really early. It starts really, really early. I mean, sensitive parents respond to evidences of selfishness when their kids refuse to share, but but just think about it. Th those moments typically happen when one child sees what the other child has and they want what the other child has. Or it just might be that your neighbor never seems to have to face anything hard. He, she, never seem to suffer. And as you take all that in, you don't find yourself rejoicing with your neighbor. Instead, you, you find yourself discontented. In fact, you, you find yourself resenting your neighbor. Further, if, you, I mean, if you're totally honest, you, you actually 
eventually find yourself embittered toward God because God has not blessed you with what he has blessed your neighbor. And, and, and probably more often than not, <laughs> your neighbor's clueless. They, they, they don't even know that you are coveting what they have. They, they, they don't even know. But according to the 10th commandment, God knows. In essence, the, ten, the rule of the 10th commandment is that we should desire nothing more than we desire God. In fact, the 10th commandment is essentially the same as the first commandment. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment says, when it comes to your allegiance and your affection and your desires, find your satisfaction in God and God alone and God above all. And the 10th commandment tells us specifically what we should not desire more than God. Namely, and in particular, our neighbor's things. So these two commands, these two rules, no other gods, no coveting, what belongs to others, they in, they in fact form bookends to the 10 commandments to break the rule of the first commandment is idolatry, which is precisely what Paul ascribes also to the 10th commandment. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul writes, put to death, as this long list of things, and he ends with this, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death desiring others' Things more than you desire God. Why? Why is coveting what belongs to others worthy of such a sanctified violence? Get kill it! It's because coveting what belongs to others is idolatry. And idolatry is breaking the first and foremost command. Idolatry is seeking satisfaction or contentment in something or someone other than God. And an idolatrous heart, it's always looking somewhere else for what can only be received from or experienced in God and God alone. Yeah. Idolatry in, involved for the Israelites bowing down to some man-made image is, as described in the second commandment. But it also involves pursuing the satisfaction of one's heart hunger in someone or something other than or, or more than God himself. And loved ones, listen. God's not trying to get us catch us, you know, trap us by laying down this 10th commandment. The Lord is expressing and maintaining consistently his, his generous-hearted care. This is the best thing he could say to us communicating a gracious warning to us of this particular example of idolatry that that's, it's more it's it's more subtle 
less obvious, but it is no less, and it's actually more serious. Idolatry. That is what the rule of the Tenth Commandment forbids. Now, second, the, the revelation of the Tenth Commandment. There's revelation here. It's communicating something. Tenth Commandment is not simply a rule. The Tenth Commandment communicates. The Tenth Commandment points to what is most valuable, what is most beautiful, what is most soul-satisfying, the most soul-satisfying object in all the universe. The Tenth Commandment communicates the most precious and most profound gift one may ever receive. The Tenth Commandment does not merely say, no, 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 no. The Tenth Commandment says, yes. Yes, it invites. Yes, it calls every reader, every keeper of the Tenth Commandment into the eternal pleasure of God himself. You see, the Tenth Commandment calls us to be satisfied in all that God is and has revealed himself to be for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't covet your neighbor's things because true, enduring, full, everlasting contentment is found only in God and all that he promises to be for us in Jesus. You see, the, the remedy for misplaced desire is discovering contentment in God as he has revealed himself ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus. I believe that our friend John Piper makes this point so effectively when he writes, he says, covetousness is desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Or, say it another way, or it, that is covetousness, covetousness is losing our contentment in God so that we start to replace God with something in our desires and contentment. That makes sense, doesn't it? When contentment in God decreases, covetous for, for stuff other than God increases. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry because the contented heart should be getting its satisfaction from God. I, th I think Piper's right. Coveting is desiring anything other than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment or satisfaction in the Lord. In other words, the, the presence of a, of a pattern of coveting, it reveals a very definite effective view of God. I mean, he's, so, he's just become so small. 
Coveting reveals a, de a deficient relationship with God. We, we've misplaced our desires to the point where God is so much less in all of the things that we find pleasure in. He's dethroned in importance. He's less than all of our other longings. So, there is a way to put a nail in, the, in this, the coffin of this most troubling of sins, and that is by pursuing complete heart satisfaction in all that God has revealed himself to be for us in the person, the glorious man, God, Jesus Christ. To put to death covetousness, says Paul, we, we do it by pursuing, by faith, complete satisfaction with what God has so generously and kindly, kindly and wonderfully provided and invited us into. Loved ones, the, the Tenth Commandment compels us to be content with God Himself, to be content with God above everything else, to be content with all that God has so graciously revealed Himself to be, promised to be, communicated Himself to be, proven Himself to be, guaranteed Himself to be for us through Christ. And so when we break the rule of the Tenth Commandment and covet what belongs to our neighbor, we dishonor God. We, we diminish Him. We, we say, in effect, God, God, you are not enough. To desire what our neighbor has by discontentedness in what we have, it's to find fault with God. It's to criticize God. It's to it's to believe a bald-faced lie about God and, and His goodness and His wisdom and His generous-heartedness and to place ourselves and our perspective and our desires above His. Thinking about the Israelites again, given all their recent experience with God and all that He had done, you just think, oh man, wait, it shouldn't be any challenge at all for these people. Israelites to feel contentment and soul satisfaction in the Lord and all that he's done for them. <laughs> Exodus 19.4, remember this? God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I, how I bore you on Egypt eagle's wings and brought you, brought you, brought you where? To myself. I mean, God just, he just blew away the, the greatest military superpower in the world at a flick of his finger and, and essentially and metaphorically airlifted the entire nation of Israel out, Israel out of enslavement, out of danger, on the wings of eagles. What did they bring to this? <laughs> they were utterly helpless, utterly hopeless, apart from God's saving intervention. They, they were as helpful 
as baby birds. And God just picks them up, the entire nation, puts them on his back and carries them out. And then he personally and he supernaturally led them through this vast wilderness and he personally and supernaturally protected them in this wilderness and provided for them in this wilderness. He, he made, you know, stinky water pure and he, he you know, he, he delivers food to them and he hands their enemies over them and to them in battle and, and then ultimately and really most importantly he brings them to Mount Sinai to himself. To himself. He brought them out of slavery into his presence. He saved them to be his people. He set them free to be his holy nation, his treasured possession. And he did it so that their satisfaction in him and their contentment in him would transcend any satisfaction, any contentment that they would find anywhere else in the world. He, he did it to confound a coveting world. What we live in? Is it the air we breathe? He did it all to magnify his greatness and his glory among the nations. Loved ones, the, the, the tenth commandment, it's just not a, a rule only. <laughs> The tenth commandment is intended by God to communicate a, a revelation that contentment and satisfaction of one's soul is found in God and in God alone. And if you're a Christian, then your story, your, your salvation history, and this purpose, this purpose of experiencing Soul satisfaction in God above all else. It's no different than the purpose for which God rescued Israel. Only, well, there is a difference. If you are a Christian, then your history and, and this revelation is greater. It's greater than theirs in every possible way. That's because all that took place in the Exodus pointed to one greater than Moses. It pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It pointed to the greater Exodus that Jesus would lead. It pointed to this greater exodus of Jesus delivering sinners, discontented coveters like you and like me, rescuing us, saving us from our enslavement to such puny little things and from the wrath of God against our falling short of finding pleasure in the ultimate pleasure. And he did that through the sinless life and substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous. He's the righteous. For the unrighteous. That's us. So that he might bring us to God. <laughs> if you're a Christian, then you've been delivered from your enslaved 
condition to sin by the righteous one who died in the place of unrighteous ones. And he died in our place for our sins so that we might enjoy the greatest, most soul-satisfying treasure in the universe, namely God himself. Jesus died on the cross so that we might not covet our neighbor's things. Keep that in mind. He suffered and died so that he might bring us to God. And what the world needs most is not more things, but the greatest, most glorious treasure of all, namely God himself. We are forgiven so that our guilt does not separate us from God. We are justified so that our condemnation does not separate us from God. God is propitiated so that his wrath does not stand between us and God. The gospel love that God gives us is ultimately the gift of himself. God himself is the gospel. Loved ones, this is what he made us for. And this is what we lost because of our sin. And this is what Christ came to restore. The ultimate nail in the coffin of covetousness is it's God and all that he has revealed himself to be and promised to be for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. possible, Lord, for us to, it's possible for us to, to be, become more aware of how short we fall when it comes to being fully satisfied in all that you are for us. More aware of that then we are aware of all that you are for us. (laughs) And so we're asking, Lord, today for you to accomplish something for helpless, hopelessly incapable people. And that is to bring into being in our hearts Faith, faith to believe that you are greater, faith to believe that you are better, faith to hope that you are the ultimate in satisfying souls, that you are the greatest and most glorious, worth more than anything. Bring into being that faith. Open the eyes of our hearts to behold you. Incline our hearts to want you. Give us a single-heartedness to pursue you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.